back to our service tonight. So glad you're here. We have guests with us, and we're thankful for that. We want you to know that you're always welcome here at the Midway Congregation. If you have been with us on Wednesday, on Sunday night, rather, you know that we are this year currently studying through the book of Judges, and we are now in chapter number six. And so we want to spend some time here tonight. If we were going to just look at chapter number six, we would say it begins with the continuing saga of the children of Israel. You know, as you look at it, you see the opening statements of chapter number 6. The Bible says the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord again. And we see that over and over and over in the book of Judges because they'll sin, they'll get things right, they'll live okay for a while, and then they'll go back to their sin. And so that's that cycle that's repeated over and over and over again tonight. We will look at the chapter uh, together tonight, but I want to ask you a question as we begin our study tonight, how many have heard the story of Gideon before? You know, the judge of the Old Testament, the story of Gideon. If I were to ask you tonight to tell me the story of Gideon, uh, would you be able to do that? Now, most of us probably at least would get a major portion of the story of Gideon uh, out. We would talk about how he was at the wine press threshing out wheat. We would talk about how the angel came and basically told him he was going to be the deliverer. And probably from there, here's where we would go. He raises an army of 32,000 men. God says, your army's too big. You've got to get rid of some of them. We'll skip the details of that. But eventually what happens, he gets his army down to 300 men. And he goes and he defeats the Midianites... And we're then, from that point, living happily ever after. You know, that's generally the way that we look at the story of Gideon. But tonight, I want us to dig a little deeper. I want us to go back to chapter number 6, where the story begins, because if we don't study chapter number 6, we're not going to really get the entirety of what God teaches us in regard to Gideon, to the story that relates to him, in uh, the next chapter, and not only that, but the story of the children of Israel, which is the important part, or at least a major part, of what God wants us to know. And so if you have your Bible, you may want to follow along with us tonight as we look at chapter number 6 of the book of Judges. Let's begin tonight by simply talking about the first few verses there of chapter number 6. As a matter of fact, we'll look at the first six verses together. And what we're going to call this first section of the book of uh, Judges, chapter number 6, is simply the plight. In other words, what are the children of Israel at this point going through? What's the problem this time? What is happening to them that they need some help? We know that they're doing evil in the sight of the Lord. We look at uh, chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. The Bible says, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of the Midianites for seven years. For seven years they are being oppressed by the, children, by the Midianites. The hand of Midian overpowered Israel because of Midian. The people of Israel made for themselves dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. Now let's just stop right there and talk a minute. The, the Midianites are causing so much problems for the children of Israel. They're having to leave their homes. They're having to flee out into the mountains. They're having to go into different places in order to be able to survive. 
And he speaks about the dens. That would be more or less the holes in the ground, if you will, the places where they would be able to dig them out some shelter so they would be able to go. He speaks about the, the caves, and all of us understand what a cave is. You know, in the hills, sometimes you'll find a cave. And so they were seeking these places out in which to live. And then the Bible says that they were seeking for the strongholds. They, were, they had come up with the strongholds. It's interesting when we think about the strongholds, we think about maybe a fortified city, a place where, you know, things could be defended and all of that. But literally what he's talking about is a hard-to-get-to place. In other words, it may be in a canyon where it was hard to get to. It may be uh, up on the mountaintop where it was hard to get to, you know, so that they would be able to watch and see. But the strongholds were places that were hard to, to get to, hard for people to be able to find, and hard for an army to be able to get into. And so as we look at them, they have left their home. They're, they're being oppressed. For seven years, they're being oppressed by the Midianites, and they're having to leave home. They're having to hunt shelter in other places because of these people. Continuing on in verse 3, the Bible says, For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites, they teamed up together, and the people of the east would come up against them, and they would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep. Israel had no sheep or ox or donkey for they would come up with their livestock in their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Do you get what he says here? These people of Israel would come down, they'd plant their crops. Depending on what they're planting, whether it's wheat or or something else, wheat would be in the fall, other things would be in the spring. They'd plant their crops. They would, they would cultivate the crops. They would watch them grow. They were getting ready to get, well, we'll just put it here in the south and change it up a little bit. They were looking at those first ripe tomatoes. They knew that they were about to get some food to eat. It's growing, it's pretty. And the next thing you know, what happens? That army of locusts come through. Not the bugs, but the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the people of the east. Bringing their camels, bringing all of their livestock, bringing themselves. And what do they do? They take what they want to eat. They turn their camels and their other livestock loose, let them eat. Tear up the plants, do all the things. And then they (laughs) go on. What are you going to eat? I mean, you can't just run down to Walmart. There's no Walmart. You can't go to Kroger. You can't go to, you know, some other grocery store because nobody has any groceries. For seven years they did that. Seven long years. People are starving. Did you notice there are no sheep, no oxen, so forth? Even the animals are starving to death. Their own animals. 
And so, you know, when he says that there are no, doesn't mean that every single one of them had disappeared, but they're rather scarce. That's going to come into play in just a minute. Okay, and so that's what's happening. Now, let me ask you a question tonight. If that happened to you, how would you feel? How would you feel if, if something like that kept on happening to you? Well, you'd be the cheeriest person in the world, wouldn't you? Well, just come on over. And, you know, I'm glad, you're, I'm glad you could come over this year. We got plenty out here. Now, I don't know what I'm going to eat when you get finished, but you go ahead and help yourself. They didn't really have a choice because the army was overpowering them. They were large in number. They were coming through. Seven years. What do you feed your children? How do you tell them, son, we don't have anything for supper tonight? How do you watch them starve? How do you watch them go through all of the things that they're going through? No wonder the Bible says they were brought very low. Folks, we'd be the same way, wouldn't we? We'd throw up our hands. We'd say, what in the world can we do? There's nothing we can do except call on God. God, help me. You know, a lot of times folks in our day and time get in the same condition, don't they? It may not be that we've had an army that runs over us, but maybe the health of a child, maybe the loss of a job, it may be some other turmoil that we have in our life. We just don't know what we're going to do. And the last place, the only place, the only other hope we've got is who? God. And so they turn back to the Lord. Lord, will you help us? We need your help. It's getting bad around here. I don't know about you, but I like to eat more than once every seven years. Okay? You can tell that. They need some help. They need some relief. Well, that brings us to the second part of chapter number six. We'll just call that the prophet. The prophet. Look at verse number seven. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the, the Midianites, what did the Lord do? Sent a prophet. The Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. He said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt. I brought you out of the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians, from the hand of all who oppressed you. I drove them out before you, gave you their land, and I said to you, I'm the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. That's what the prophet preached. That's what the prophet said. Basically what the prophet said is this, God is able to deliver you. You're calling on his name. You're asking him for help. God sends a prophet to them. And his message is this. God is able to deliver you. He's able. He's done it before. Your ancestors can tell you about all that he's done before. He is able to deliver you. That's the prophet's message. Now I want you to notice what we have recorded in these, this passage, at least, 
The, God, the, the prophet simply says you haven't obeyed his voice. He doesn't call on them to repent. He doesn't warn them about that. He just tells them what God can do. They've called on God's name, and he tells them what God can do. Now, I want you to think about a couple of things from this passage. Remember, it's sort of like the story that we just finished in chapters 5 and 6. Do you remember the Bible speaks about Deborah? The Bible says she was judging Israel in a certain spot. But what's the other thing that the Bible says about Deborah? She was a prophetess. She was one who was able uh, to relay messages from God. And we also have another deliverer, another one who's leading the army, Barak in that case. And so now we have a prophet that God sends to deliver a message. I can deliver you. But he's going to raise up another deliverer. He's going to raise up another man to lead the army to deliver the children from the children of Israel from the hand of the Midianites. But what is the problem? God, uh, God tells them, I can do it, but there seems to still be a problem. And if you don't catch that, if you don't get that, you'll miss the point of chapter number 6. What is the problem that's going on here? They were calling on God, but they also had the other idols that they continued to worship. Remember what he says here, I said to you, I'm the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. What were they not obeying the voice of God about? Well, about exactly what he just mentioned. They're still calling on the name of the gods of the Amorites. They're still offering sacrifices to Baal. And he's going to come into play as we continue this chapter. God says, you didn't listen to me. I am God. Now, if we go back to the book of Exodus chapter 20, how many gods are there? As God is making a covenant with the children of Israel, one. Who are they to worship? The one God. Who, is, who, is, who else were they to have? Nobody else. He was the one. They had God, but they split their allegiance between God and the other gods. Between the Almighty God and the God of the Amorites. Gods of the Amorites. It almost made God just one among many. They called on Him to help, but they still had the others. They wanted a little bit of God, but they wanted a little bit of the others too. You ever known anybody like that? I want a little bit of God in life, but I want a little bit of the world too. I split my allegiance. That seems to be what's happening here, and we'll see that again develop more as we go through the chapter. That's what's happening. Now, this won't be on the screen, but if you have your Bible, you may want to turn to 2 Kings chapter 17, and we'll begin reading in verse 33 and continue for the next few verses there. The Bible says about the people at that time, 
So they feared the Lord God, or they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods. Same situation that's going on. They feared the Lord, but also served their own gods, after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. To this day, they do according to the former manner. They do not fear the Lord, and they do not follow the statutes or the rules or the law or the commandment that the Lord commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel. The Lord made a covenant with them and commanded them, You shall not fear the other gods or bow yourselves to them or serve them or sacrifice to them. But you shall fear the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt with great power and with an outstretched arm. You shall bow yourselves to him and to him you shall sacrifice. And the statutes and the rules and the law and the commandment that he wrote for you, you shall always be careful to do. You shall not fear other gods. You shall not forget the covenant that I've made with you. You shall not fear other gods, but you shall fear the Lord your God, and he will deliver you out of the hand of all your enemies. The problem of the people, if you notice in that reading, the people in the day that uh, the book of Second Kings was being written, and what he's writing about there, he, he mentions the former time. Former time is right here in the time of Gideon. They've got God, but they've got hmm, all these other gods too. We think about in the book of Acts chapter 17, the, the people at Mars Hill. They had all of these gods, all of these places set up to the gods, and that's where Paul speaks about the unknown God. They had everything that you could imagine. They did it a multiplicity. But God, the Bible says, is a jealous God. He won't sacrifice. He won't, he won't share His honor and His glory among the nations or among other gods. That's their problem. That's what's happening here. And so He sends a prophet and says, I can deliver you. But you haven't done what I told you to do because you're still serving those other gods. I told you not to do that, but you still do it. And the prophet never tells him to stop. He just said, you didn't listen to me. Okay? Pretty interesting that he said it in that way. You know, basically, though, what he's doing is the same thing that Joshua did. Joshua 24, verse 15. Choose you this day whom you'll serve whether it's the gods of the people, his own family on the other sides of the Euphrates River, or the gods of the people whose land that they were about to inhabit. And that's where Joshua says, but as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. That's what this prophet basically is calling on them to do. You're going to have to make a choice. Do you want God who can deliver you? Do you want all of these logs and images and things that you've made with your hands who are not even alive? You've got to make a choice. And so he sends the prophet, number three. 
the promise. This part of the book of Joshua or Judges chapter number 6, pretty interesting. Beginning at verse number 11, the Bible says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiah's right, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. That's where we, you know, a lot of times start the story of Gideon, okay? The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Now, before we go on and read the rest of the passage there on down through verse 16, there's probably something that we need to talk about. The angel of the Lord comes and he speaks to Gideon. And what statement does he make? The Lord is with you. Sometimes when we use the word you, the pronoun you, I can say you and refer to every person in here in this building, this audience. Or I can come up here to Tommy and I can say, you do something. One of the yous is singular, one of them's plural. One of them pertains to one person, and one pertains to plurality, a bunch of folks. When the angel of the Lord speaks to Gideon, at least at first here, when he says, I am with you, back up there, the Lord is with you, verse number 12. How does Gideon at first take that? Plural. If the Lord's with us, why has all this happened to us? Okay. The only problem is, when the Bible says, the angel said to Gideon, the Lord is with you, It's singular. I'm not saying, Gideon, I'm with Israel at this point. I'm saying I'm with you, the one man. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? He's not sending the whole nation. He's sending Gideon. Do I not send you? Uh Uh-oh. It dawns on Gideon what the Lord just said. The angel of the Lord just said. He said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan's the weakest in Manasseh. I'm the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you. And you shall strike 
the Midianites as one man. You'll strike them down as though, you'll strike the whole army down as though they're just one person. I will be with you. God makes a promise to Gideon. He promises him, I'll be with you. You go in your might. I'm sending you. All of that is quite singular. It's trying to sink in. I don't know if I can do it. I'm going to need some proof. You know, Gideon was a whole lot like Moses, wasn't he? Moses was, went up to investigate uh, the burning bush, and God said to him, you know, I want you to deliver my people. And Moses basically begins to come up with every excuse in the book. Well, how can I do it? I can't even talk plain. I'm going to need some proof, Lord. Moses, what's that in your hand? Well, it's a stick. Throw it down. Throws it down, what does he get? Snake. About that time, Moses was on the other mountain. No, he didn't leave that fast. God says, pick it back up. What did it become? Stick. I need some proof. Lord, are you really who you say you are? That's not always a bad thing. We need some proof. Now again, that's going to come into play in just a minute as well. I need some proof. Lord, if you're who you say you are, let me know. Well, that brings us to the next major section that we're simply going to call the present. The present. What about it? He said to him, this is Gideon speaking to the angel of the Lord, if now I found favor in your eyes, show me a sign. I need the proof. Show me a sign that's you who speak to me. I don't want to wake up going out here trying to fight against the Midianites and figure out that I've been dreaming, even though I'm standing out here sweating because I've been, you know, trying to get this wheat all separated out. Show me a sign that it's you who speak with me. Please do not depart, depart from here until I come and bring out my present and set it before you. Gideon basically says... Lord, I'm going to bring you a present. I'm going to bring you a present. Please wait on me. And he said, I'll stay till you return. So Gideon went to his house, prepared a young goat, and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. That present's going to be pretty big. Because number one, he kills the goat which there aren't many there. Remember what the Bible said about the oxen and the sheep and so forth? It's going to be a pretty big present because he's killing one of the only things perhaps they've got for milk, for, you know, for, for food. I'm going to bring you that. But I'm going to bring you also an ephah of flour. I'm going to make some cakes out of an ephah of flour. Well, how many cakes did he make? If you do some research into how much an ephah of flour is, what you'll find is this. 
It's somewhere between 34 and 45 pounds. Somewhere between seven and nine of those five-pound bags of white lily that I'm going to make cakes out of. Ladies, you ever made cakes out of that many bags of flour at one time? Especially when the Midianites have pretty much taken everything you've got. We're just trying to harvest as what we can and get it to feed ourselves and our families. That is a pretty big present that he's bringing to the angel of the Lord. Wait here till I get back because I want a sign from you. The meat he put in a basket, the broth he put in a pot. Some commentators say that part of it he prepared for him to consume now, part of it to take with him. And he brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and unleavened cakes, put them on the rock, pour the broth over them, and he did it. The angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand, touched the meat and unleavened cakes, and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. Not a pancake, not a cracker. Cakes that were made out of between 34 and 45 pounds of flour. And an entire animal that had been prepared consumed the meat and then leavened cakes and the angel of the Lord vanished from sight. Now look at verse 22. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. What is Gideon's concern? That I've seen an angel? Well, many folks saw angels in those days. I've seen the angel of the Lord. Does that phrase sound familiar? When we were studying through the book of Joshua, we found that phrase a couple of times. And as we studied through it at that time, what did we find? We're talking about deity. Not just in any messenger. Most likely, as we studied through it before, we don't have time to do it all tonight. Most likely, the one whom we know as the Son of God, who'd taken the form of a messenger and come down himself. I am with you. You remember when Moses was on the mountain, he wanted to see God's face? What God told him, you can't see my face. No man sees my face and lives. And now Gideon begins to worry. I've seen the face of God. What's going to happen to me? But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you, do not fear. You're not going to die. 
Gideon basically says, I've seen God. I've seen God. I want a sign. By the way, I highlighted that word present. That word present, if you go back and you study, is the same word that's used in reference to the free will offerings that the Israelites made to God. And whoever it was accepted that and burned it. Remember what he did? Put it down on the rock and it was consumed. Burned it just like the offerings were. He accepted it. You see, Gideon understood who it was who was speaking to him. And so what does he do? Verse 24, he builds an altar there to the Lord and called it the Lord is peace. And to this day, the writer says, it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the uh, Abiezrites. The very next thing that we're going to read is about tearing down the altar of Baal. Whatever it is that Gideon does, he has now pledged his allegiance to God. I'm building an offering, an altar to Him. You are my God. And I will follow whatever you say. How did I know that? I kept reading through the progression, which is the next point. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull. And the English Standard Version says a second bull, seven years old, pull it down or pull and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold there with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of that Asherah that you shall cut down. Not only has he brought the present, now he is making the sacrifice. What did he do? Tore down the altar of Baal. There's the changing of the allegiance. That's no longer part of his life. Somebody says, well, what about his father's bull? Pretty interesting there. Take your father's bull. Now, and a second bull. Some translations seem to indicate, King James included, indicate there's only one bull, and it's called a second bull. In other words, a bull that was not the first rate. The one that, was all, that ought to be pledged to God. And why was that? It was his father's. It was a second bull because his father also had worshipped Baal. Very likely with the first bull, the prime bull, the one that should have been offered. And that's the only one he has left. Offered as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten men, his own, 
Did as the Lord told him because he was too afraid, English Standard Version says, of his family and the men of the town. If you're reading from the King James, of his father's household. He didn't even believe daddy would spare him. He was afraid of him and what he would do. Why? What's the implication? Daddy is a worshiper of Baal. The altar's on daddy's property. And it's evidently a community altar because the men of the, uh, of the town, uh, they worshiped there too. He was afraid of them. So he did it by night, the Bible says. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down. The Asherah beside it cut down. The second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, what? Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die. For he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. Joash, that's Gideon's dad. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal? Or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a God, let him contend for himself. Because his altar has been broken down. Notice that Gideon doesn't. He's afraid of daddy first. So he gets his ten servants and goes. Takes daddy's bull. I'm sure daddy's not going to be happy with that. Breaking down the altar. But daddy's recognized something. Gideon tore down the altar and he survived. If this God that we've been worshiping is truly a God, then that God can take vengeance on my son. Did it happen? Did he stop the, the son from tearing down the altar and burning the image as wood to offer sacrifice to God? No, and he couldn't do it. He makes that argument to the people. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubbabel. That is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altar. Now watch this next part. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together. They crossed the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel, but the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. He sounded the trumpet, and the Abiezrites were called out to follow him. He sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali, and they went up to meet them. Folks, there's a big change in attitude. Gideon is afraid of his own people. So he tears down the altar at night. They come out, they want to kill him. Daddy steps in and daddy says, well, if this God that we've been worshiping is really a God, then he'll take care of him. He didn't do anything when the altar was being torn down. You see... Gideon's father 
evidently was convinced. The men of the town were convinced. He begins to send them out. They began to tell the message of what has happened, and they began to call these other people. How did Gideon get his army of 32,000? Did he get on his iPhone and post it on Facebook and say, all right, everybody, come on over. We're going to fight the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the East. Well, I know they didn't have iPhones back then. But the message wasn't simple to get out either. These people were worshiping Baal. And they had to be convinced to put away the Baal and worship God and Him alone. And when they were convinced, they were ready to go and follow Gideon and fight against this great army. That's how he raised his army of 32,000. You see, if you notice the name of the, title, the, the lesson tonight, I simply called it Altar, A-L-T-E-R, the Altar, A-L-T-A-R. Change the one you worship. Pledge your allegiance to God. Put Him first. Here's some lessons very quickly tonight. God does not bring deliverance until His people repent. Put Him first. He didn't tell them to do that. He just said, I can do it, but He showed them. He showed them. God has shown us about His deliverance by sending His Son who died for us. Question is, will we change our allegiance and put him first? Number two, before Gideon could go out against the enemy, he had to deal with his own stuff first, didn't he? Had to get his own life right. Had to get his family right. Had to get his town right. And then they could go out farther. If we want to be effective in the work of the Lord, it starts at home. We've got to get our own stuff right first. Well, our time is up tonight. There's so many other things. We're going to talk about Gideon again. But I hope you see tonight there's more to the story of Gideon than just him raising an army, God paring it down to 300 people, them charging in at night and slaughtering an entire army. There's more to the story than that. The people had to turn back to God. They were already calling on Him. We need your help, God. But they had other things that stood between them and God and they had to get it out. Maybe that's your case tonight. Are you trying to divide your allegiance? Some of the world, some of God, some of this, some of that some Christianity along the way. Just as he shows us here, God won't be our deliverer until we get him in the right spot in our life. Maybe you're here and you need to be baptized for the remission of sin. Maybe you're here and you've done that, but you got your stuff that you got to get rid of. If that's the case, why don't you do it right now as together we stand and sing. Just as I